The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, and welcome to Resurrection Sunday at the Brian Baptist Church. We're thankful that you can join us today as we read the Holy Scriptures. Praise our Lord in song and hear a message from God's Word. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our purpose is not to reproduce our church services because we can't without the people. We don't want to give the impression that we satisfy the Lord's command for the church to meet when we're not assembled as the church is commanded to be. So we don't intend this to be an elaborate production, but simply a sampling of the various ways we worship the Lord. We begin today with our call to worship. I hope you have your Bible. We will read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Uh, this portion of Scripture is the appearance of the risen Christ to two disciples who walked the road between Emmaus and Jerusalem. Our reading is from Luke 24, verses 13 through 27, and then verses 44 through 48. That's Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, what manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher, and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in verse number 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day 
and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. This Easter is the most unusual in my 60 years that I've been a Christian. On Easter, we usually have one of the largest crowds of the year, and the church plans for it, and we have special music for it. And there's worship, and there's joyous singing and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But as I stand in the auditorium today behind this podium and on this pulpit, in front of me there are rows of empty seats. There's hardly a face for me to look into as I speak. There's hardly a person that I can make contact with. The church is mostly vacant except for those who help with this recording. Now you'll notice that as I speak, I pan from side to side and I preach this way because of habit. I, I expect that I will see your faces sitting in your places because that's the most comfortable way that I preach the Word of God. And each of you that are members of our church know that I am a creature of habit and just a person out of their place can sometimes disturb my calm. But I have no one that I can see today. I have no one to fellowship with. And as a Christian who firmly believes in going to church and meeting with God's people. This is a very poor substitute for communication. But the upside is that I do get to preach. You get to hear from God's Word. And His Word is always profitable for those who hear, no matter what form it comes to them. I want you to earnestly continue to pray about this tragedy that's befallen our country and indeed the entire world. Pray that in God's sovereign power that he will reach out and stop this virus and the fear that accompanies it. Pray that our people would be kept safe and that we would lose none to this disease. And I want you to pray for that, but I'll not tell you that we claim victory over it. God will relieve us of it in his due time. He'll use it to accomplish his purpose. And then when he's through, he will be glorified. And I don't promise that we'll quickly understand his purpose. I know that it will work for the good of his people, but whether we find out now in all of its aspects, I don't know. But we do have a task before us today to, to glorify God through the preaching of his word. And God says that his word will not return to him void. And whether I can see your faces and understand how you react to the message is not really critical to the way that God will use it. There is one very important thing that I know. I have an advantage in this venue because I can preach as long as I need. And I really don't need to worry about getting too close to lunchtime because I know when you get hungry or you need to go to the bathroom, you just hit the pause button and you go make a sandwich. Then you come back and you sit down and resume as you munch away. And to that, I would say don't get used to it because we will have church again, contrary to Many people's thinking the church is the church when it's assembled. And without the assembly, we lose the definition of church. God preserves his church, and he has for 2,000 years. So I'm confident we will meet again. Now, for our message on this Resurrection Sunday, I have an unusual title. Uh, some might not even like the title. You may be confused by it. I believe that you expect that I would preach to you about the empty tomb. 
But my message is not about the empty tomb, because on Easter the tomb wasn't empty. Now, I know that it sounds like blasphemy to say that for a preacher of the gospel to say the tomb wasn't empty on Easter, but I want to explain to you why it wasn't empty, and the title of the message today is Why the Tomb Was Not Empty. Now, I hope you have your Bible in front of you. If you would please open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. This is the Apostle John's record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so you can put all of your fears aside that I will claim that Jesus was still in the tomb on the Sunday morning after his crucifixion. He wasn't there, but there was something there, and we can learn some things about the somethings that were there. John chapter 20, and we'll read the first 18 verses of this chapter. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulchre, and seeing the stone taken away from the sepulchre, then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now John doesn't name himself in this gospel account. And so when he says the other disciple, he means himself. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first through the sepulchre. He, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in." Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Now, if you'll go down to verse number 30, I want to read the postscript that John added. In verse number 30, he says, In many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now, John is the only New Testament author that clearly defines the singular purpose of his book. He recorded many signs that Jesus did, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing in him, you would have life through his name. And what is his name? Well, his name is Lord. He is Jehovah God, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And the greatest miracle of the sovereign Lord that John recorded is that by his own power, he arose from the dead. Now, the New Testament always uses the resurrection of Jesus to prove that he is the Christ. And to be saved and to have life in his name, you must believe that he arose from the dead. And I want you to mark that down because this is very important. He was dead. And he was placed in the tomb because he was dead. And the miracle of Easter is that a dead man came back to life and he was not in that tomb on Sunday morning. But when the disciples came to the grave, they did find some things that were in the tomb. Many of you know about J. Vernon McGee. He was a pastor and a radio Bible teacher that died in 1988. His program was through the Bible and reruns of his program are still being aired. And on his program, he taught the Bible verse by verse, and then he also answered Bible questions that were sent in by his listeners. There was a lady that wrote J. Vernon McGee with this question. She said, our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? And McGee answered, dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, then you see what happens. Now Jesus was surely dead, and he arose from the dead. And when the disciples came to the tomb, they didn't find a body, but they did find remarkable evidence of the resurrection. And their eyes were opened that what he did was what he told them that he would do. Now, there are also some very important lessons that we can learn from the tomb. If you're taking notes today, these are the headings of discussion. First is the consequences of sin. Secondly is the condemnation of sinners. And then finally, the conquest of the Savior. The consequences of sin, the condemnation of sinners, and the conquest of the Savior. Now, let's set the scene and think about the visit of Peter and John to the garden tomb. Three and a half days before Sunday morning, very late in the evening, Jesus was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. He was quickly ushered before a meeting of Jewish authorities where the high priest questioned him and determined that he was guilty of blasphemy because he claimed that he was the Son of God. Early in the next morning, he was taken to appear before Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate questioned him, and finding no crime or cause of death, he would have let him go, except that the leaders insisted, and people insisted, that he should be crucified. Pilate wanted to appease the crowd, and so in order to keep them calm, he consented to send Jesus to the death of the cross. And in the next few hours, Jesus was cruelly beaten. An expert 
with a whip was called, uh, a, a cat of nine tails was used, and skillfully he cut furrows deep into Jesus' back until it was cut to ribbons. And then when they were through with the beating, Jesus was barely recognizable as a human being. By nine o'clock in the morning, they'd taken him to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and Roman soldiers stretched him out on a wooden cross and nails were driven into his hands and feet. They fastened him to the cross and then that cross was hoisted up and dropped into a hole. Jesus' body shook with the pain as the cross hit the bottom of that hole with a thud. For the next three hours until 12 o'clock noon, Jesus hung there. And during those first three hours, there were various things that were said in conversation with the crowd and with the two thieves that were on either side. And then at 12 o'clock, something happened. A thick darkness came over the whole area. I personally believe that it came over the whole world. And for the next three hours, Jesus suffered in darkness. And it was during those three hours that God the Father turned his back on his son as he suffered for the sins of everyone who would believe in him. At three o'clock in the afternoon, the darkness ended and Jesus gave up his life and died on the cross. Now, normally, a crucified man would hang there for days, but because the next day was a Sabbath, the bodies of the three that were crucified had to be taken down from the crosses. Soldiers came to hasten the deaths of the thieves that were hanging with Jesus. They broke their legs. But when they came to Jesus, they discovered unexpectedly that he was already dead. And so instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers thrust a spear into his side. After this, he was taken down from the cross and his body was prepared for burial. And there were two men, two men who, oddly enough, were secret disciples and they prepared the body. Joseph of Arimathea claimed the body. Nicodemus joined him to take the body to anoint it with burial spices. And they wrapped it and they wound it round and round with linen strips of cloth. Now the, the events surrounding the, the death of Jesus are intensely interesting. But the story begins to heat up as the body was prepared for burial and then left in the tomb. Now, up to this point, as, as far as anyone could tell, Jesus died like hundreds before him. The Romans often used crucifixion as punishment. There were many, as Rome used it to deter crimes against the peace, and most crucifixions were indistinguishable from this one. Now, there were some anomalies in this one, of course, but there was no one who wasn't certainly sure that Jesus was dead. When Joseph and Nicodemus took the body, there was no question in their minds that he was dead. And so they began to prepare him for burial. First, the custom was to wash the body, and then they began a process that would take several hours to finish. They wrapped the body with strips of linen, and with each wrap, they carefully inserted spices and aloes into the folds of the linen. The Bible tells us that approximately 75 pounds of spices were used on Jesus' body in this process. The aloes would give off an aromatic fragrance, and the myrrh was like a fragrant sticky gum that held the linen strips in place. And so they wrapped the body, leaving the shoulders, the neck, and the head bare. And then another cloth, like a turban, was wrapped around his head. 
And when all these preparations were done, they lovingly placed the body in its position in the tomb, and the body lay there for three days until sometime early on Sunday morning. Now, this information is introduction to prepare you for what was in the tomb. And what I'd like you to do is to think about what you would have seen. What you would have seen if you were in the tomb at that moment when Jesus rose from the dead. Would you see Jesus rise and stretch himself, start rubbing his eyes, and then try to struggle out of the grave clothes? Would you find him peeling off strips of linen and throwing them on the floor? Well, if so, then it would have been very much like the preacher who said that Jesus wasn't dead, but that he just merely fainted. No, that's not what you would have seen. You would have seen Jesus' body pass through the grave clothes, then it would rise and go through the stone that sealed the door. You see, the angels didn't roll away the stone to let Jesus out. They rolled away the stone to let the disciples look in. And after the body came out of the grave clothes, the linens that wrapped it would have collapsed under the weight of the spices, and they would lay there totally undisturbed. The turban around his head didn't have the weight of all the spices on it, and so it probably would have retained its turban shape and would have been separated from the other linen clothes by the space where the shoulders and the neck and the head were. This is what you would have seen. And as we look in this narrative in John, this is exactly what they found. In verse number 2, Peter and John ran to the tomb after hearing news from Mary Magdalene. John was the first to arrive. He looked in, but he didn't go in. He saw the linen clothes in the place where Joseph and Nicodemus had placed the body. Oh, there was something peculiar about it because the body was gone. Well, why weren't the grave clothes gone? If the body was stolen, as it was later reported by those who lied about the resurrection, then why didn't they take the grave clothes with them? And would they have taken time to remove the wrappings from the body to steal it? Well, that didn't make sense. And if they did remove them, how could they be there undisturbed? They would have been on, on the floor in a mess, being unwound from all the gummy spices. But John didn't see any of that. He saw undisturbed grave clothes. He saw, but he didn't go in. Peter arrived just moments later, and in verse 6, the brash Peter pushed John aside and went in as if it was his business and his job to do an inspection. In the original language, there's some interesting words used that tell the difference in how they saw what was in the tomb. John saw first. And the word that's used to describe the way that he looked is a common word that simply means he gazed or that he just saw. But when Peter went to look, the word changes. And this time, it's the Greek word theorio. And that is the same word for which we get theory and get theorized. And this means that Peter closely inspected what was before him and he scrutinized the scene. And what he saw were the grave clothes undisturbed and the turban lying separately, neatly separated from where the rest of the body was. Now, while Peter was standing there mulling it over, John decided he would go in. And when he did, the Bible says that he believed. What did he believe? Well, it was clear to him that Jesus did exactly what he said that he would do. That he had, in fact, risen from the dead. And he didn't understand all of that. 
But John became the first to believe in the resurrection. The empty tomb that wasn't quite empty contained all the evidence that was needed at that moment for John to believe that Jesus arose from the dead. And this was all perfectly planned by God because if the grave clothes were gone or if they were there and they were in a mess, then there would have been no proof that Jesus arose. Later, the disciples saw him, but the claims that the disciples stole the body or that Jesus fainted, those could not be true because of the condition of the grave clothes. Now, I'd like to turn your attention to the tomb in another way. And I, I want you to see these things in the tomb. And, and I'll, I'll quickly take you through the outline that I gave you at the beginning. And as we look into the tomb, the first truth that we notice is the consequences of sin. Death, the tomb, physical death, is a consequence of sin. Now understand that it was for sin and sin alone that Jesus had to die. And as we investigate the tomb and we think about sin's consequences, we're looking into the grave of a man who didn't have to die. Jesus was not someone who had to die. He is immortal God. And when he was in eternity, there was no death that he could experience. He was with the Father in glory. And unless he should choose to die, there was never anything that could alter his position that he should need to experience physical death. In fact, if God had not chosen to do it, he could never have created the world. If God wanted, when he created the world, he could choose not to let sin enter the world. After creating everything and permitting sin to enter, he could have chosen to leave all people in their natural condition as sinners that are justly condemned to hell. And therefore, he could have decided that no sacrifice would be made, that no death would be necessary for his son. And so when you look into the tomb, you peer into a grave for somebody that didn't have to die. But God decided that he would die and to make his death the redemption of fallen man. And he said that he would take some out of the fallen race among whom all justly deserve hell and he would mark them as special objects of his mercy and grace and he would save them from their sins. It was the sins of people that made it necessary for Christ to go to the cross. The sins of people made it necessary for him to die and therefore it was necessary for him to have a tomb to receive the body of the God-man who didn't have to die. Now, friends, if you go to a cemetery today and you observe the grave markers, just know that in every grave there is a person who had to die. The Bible says that all people are appointed to die. And we know that the Bible is true because there is no one that we know that's left this world without dying. Every grave in the cemetery is for people who are sinners and the consequences of sin is death. And so those graves, those tombs are for people who had to die. Their sins made death necessary. And may I remind you that in this terrible pandemic that people die because they are sinners. There is no one who is innocent and deserves to live. Death comes because of sin. And whether it comes to those who get the virus or those who just die of old age, death comes because of sin. But the tomb of Jesus was for someone who didn't have to die. 
Now this tells us that in the tomb is reflected the punishment of someone who never sinned. If death is the consequence of sin, and if that's part of the punishment of sin, then it tells us that the one who was in this tomb that was dead was punished, although he never sinned. And we have to ask, is there justice in this? You know, one of the wonderful things about being American is our judicial system. I know it has its flaws, but would you rather be at the mercy of any other judicial system in the world than the one that we have in America? If you were accused of a crime in communist China, would you feel comfortable under their legal system? Would you feel confident of your chances in Saudi Arabia or one of the Muslim countries where they cut off hands and arms and legs and cut off heads? One of the things that we pride ourselves in is justice under our legal system where we would rather see 99 guilty men go free than just one unjustly punished for a crime he didn't commit. And when we stand accused in God's courtroom, we're not innocent. We're guilty of crimes against the holy God. And so if you ask, why do innocent people die from the virus? It's not really the question. The question is, why do any of the guilty survive? Because all have sinned against God. All are justly deserving of punishment. Our crimes are against a holy and righteous God. And also, they are against the infinite God. And as, as such, they require infinite punishment. And I want to warn you today that eternal punishment is the justice of God against those who do not receive Christ as Savior. Now, physical death, that's a result of a curse that's been placed on all people. But eternal death is only for those who don't trust Christ. But when you look at Jesus, you don't see the innocent set free. The innocent was punished. We see the one who never sinned was crucified and put into a tomb. When he was judged, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. He also wrote, For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. But when you look into the tomb, it's the grave of an innocent man. No crimes could be laid to his charge, and yet he gave himself to die on the cross for those who sinned, for those who were guilty, he died for them, and so a tomb must be prepared. Oh, he never should have been there, but he went because he wanted to change the consequences of sin. Sin says that we must die, but Christ says that we can live again because he died to pay for sin. You deserve eternal death, but Christ died so that you could escape that death. So even if you escape the death of the virus, you'll not escape the death or death itself forever, but you can escape eternal death because Christ died for the guilty. In the tomb, you see the consequences of sin. Oh, well, there's something else that's seen in the tomb. Next, you see the condemnation of sinners. A look into the tomb reveals evidence that sin condemns. The grave clothes are evidence that someone died. You don't need grave clothes for people that aren't dead. So the tomb tells us that death is inevitable. 
Now, I remember when I was a child, the little country church that my dad pastored had a cemetery that was behind the church. And in this cemetery, there were some very old graves. Some of them dated back before the Revolutionary War. When I was a child, our old country church didn't have inside restrooms. And so there was an old wooden outhouse behind the church. I don't know who thought of this, but they decided they would put the outhouse on the other side of the cemetery. So when you were in church and you had to go, you only had one choice. You had to walk through the cemetery. And this was especially bad at night. You know, I'm old now and walking through a cemetery at night wouldn't bother me. But I was a child then. And, and you can be sure that I was terrified. And I'll confess and be honest that sometimes I didn't get all the way through the cemetery. But I stopped and went behind a gravestone hoping the dead wouldn't mind. Well, the cemetery is a reminder that death is coming. I mean, every visit to a cemetery just screams that one day you'll be there too. A tomb is a reminder of the inevitability of death. We are condemned to die and it will come. So what do you need to do? Well, you need to be prepared to be separated from life in this world. And I can promise that many people who weren't thinking about death are thinking about it now. They're thinking about it in this crisis. I, I've read that interest in creating a will has gone up 73%. As of Good Friday, I think I heard that uh, about 20,000 people have died in the U.S. in the past two months. People are thinking about death. As you get older, you start to think about preparations. My wife tells me all the time, we need to be prepared. She says, we need to get ready because we don't want our, our kids to be burdened with all the details after we've died. And so she says, we need to start thinking about a burial plot. We need to think about choosing a casket and all of that. And I don't know, I just have a hard time thinking about it. I don't want to get prepared because I really don't want to think about death. But let me tell you about one preparation I made a long, long time ago, and I'm glad that I did. I prepared for my eternal soul. Or rather, I should say that God prepared me for it, and then he called me to it. One Sunday morning at seven years old, I was sitting only a few feet from the pulpit. My dad was preaching. Suddenly, I just felt something grip my heart. Oh, I, I, I'd been to church from the time that I was born. The first place that I was taken after I was born was to church. And all my life, up to then, I had been a good church-going boy. But on this Sunday morning, I knew that something was wrong. The Holy Spirit gripped my heart, and I started to think about dying. I was only seven years old, and rationally, that's not a time to think about death. But I started to think about death, and I knew that if I died at that very moment, I would go straight to hell. And I just knew they would put me in that cemetery behind the church, and people would walk on my grave on the way to the outhouse. And so I was scared. I was more scared than walking to the cemetery at night. I knew I needed to be prepared for it. And so I tell you what I did. I got ready right then. Because I didn't know when I would die. And I wanted to be ready. Now let me say to each of you, you don't know when death will come. And are we any more uncertain of when death will come than we are at this very moment and in this crisis? Some think about their family if they should die. That's good. You ought to. But can I tell you that it's all right to be a little selfish 
And to think about your own soul and where you will be when you're gone. Where will your soul be after you die? And there are only two places that you can go when you die. It's either heaven or it's hell. And if you make no preparations, you will spend eternity in hell. Now is the time for people across our country to prepare for heaven. And there's only one way that you can do it. And that's by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Where are you going when you die? All are condemned to death, but all don't have to stay condemned to hell. All are condemned to hell without Christ, but we see that Jesus died, and he was in that tomb. He went into that tomb to change you from condemnation to consolation, and he came out of that tomb to change you from eternal death to eternal life. Death separates you from this life and from your loved ones. You want to make sure that it doesn't separate you from God forever. And that's what hell is. It's separation from God for all eternity. And it doesn't have to end that way because you can see into the tomb and you see that it's empty. There is no body there. The consequences of sin, the condemnation of sinners, those are seen in the tomb. And because it's only grave clothes that were there and not the body, this is also what you can see by the eye of faith. You can see the conquest of the Savior. Peter and John ran to the tomb and they looked inside. They didn't see a body. All they saw were grave clothes. All they saw was the evidence of the resurrection. Now let me quickly finish our Easter message by telling you Jesus is not in the tomb and the tomb was not even Jesus to begin with. It belonged to one of these secret disciples that buried him. Joseph of Arimathea thought that he was giving up the place that he had prepared for his burial. Well, you see, he was prepared. He knew that he would die. And so he already had his burial plot chosen. He had the tomb chiseled out of the rock. But then his plans were spoiled. He thought they were spoiled because he gave his tomb to Jesus. So he wouldn't be buried there after all. But I want you to notice that Jesus returned what he borrowed. If you look in a tomb, what do you see? Well, you ex I expect you go to most graves, I, I think you expect to find a body. I was confident that in the graveyard behind the church, there were bodies or else I wouldn't have been afraid. In fact, I saw them put some of the bodies there. My dad preached many funerals for folks that were buried in that cemetery. In Jesus' tomb, there wasn't a body. Peter and John looked in and there was no body. Jesus didn't need the tomb for very long. And this is why we always talk about the borrowed tomb. Now, what do you do with things that you borrow? Well, what you should do is return them. Some people borrow books from me and don't return them. And I'm sure that their graves will not be empty. Jesus kept the tomb for three days. And then he returned it to its rightful owner. Because there is no body, do you know what that tells us? It tells us that Jesus died for sin and that he will raise whoever believes. And when you investigate the tomb and you see that it's empty, it means that Jesus, who had the power to raise his own body, has the power to raise yours as well. I want you to listen to Paul's argument for the resurrection of our bodies. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Now there Paul testifies that Christ did arise from the grave, and we've seen it ourselves, because we've come and we've looked into that tomb with Peter and John, and we've seen undisturbed grave clothes. There is no valid argument that Jesus didn't arise from the dead. And now Paul goes on in the last part of that chapter to say, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are afraid of dying, here's the truth that you need to hear. All believers in Jesus will be raised from the dead. When you look in the tomb and see there is no body, then you know assuredly that if you believe in Jesus, that you will also rise. Jesus conquered sin, death, and hell and his resurrection is proof of it. Because he lives, you can live. Now, I just want to ask you today, is that your assurance? Have you believed? H have you seen into the empty tomb? And do, do you know that Jesus went to the cross, that he went to the tomb, and he came out of the tomb to save you if you believe? In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan wrote that Christian, Christian's the main character of the allegory, Christian carried his burden on his back up the hill to the cross. And when he saw the cross, his burden fell off of his back and rolled down the hill to the mouth of the tomb, and it fell in, never to be seen again. Now let me make this last statement for you today. Once you've seen the tomb, there's no need to go back. Do you know it's remarkable that never once do we read in the Bible that the disciples went back to the tomb once they saw it was empty, why would they? On Easter, people visit cemeteries. They know that the remains of their loved ones are there. But the disciples never went back to put flowers on Jesus' tomb because there was no remains. Jesus arose in a glorified body and he lives forever. In Jerusalem, there is a tomb. I've been there. Religious pilgrims go there. No one knows for certain if it's the tomb of Jesus. Is it important to know? Why would it be? Jesus isn't there. So what would you hope to see? There is no need to go back. And when you see his tomb through the eyes of faith, you'll never make a memorial of the tomb. You'll never need to visit again because you know that Jesus arose from the dead and so will you. And there's no reason to visit all the burdens that you had before you went to the cross. There's no reason for that. They all fell off when you believed and they roll away and you'll never see them again. There is 
No fear in death for believers. Our hope is in Christ. Now maybe COVID-19 is the way that I go. I'm I'm not anxious to get sick, but I'm not going to sorrow as those who have no hope. Because if I die, I know that I go to be with Jesus. And then in the resurrection, my body will go up and leave an empty tomb. Now, I hope today that you understand better why it was so important that there was something in the tomb. Now, when Jesus left and he came out, he left something behind, those grave clothes. And this is all the proof that we need that Jesus is alive just as he said he would be. There is no body, but when you look in the tomb, you need to see the consequences of sin and the condemnation of sinners And best of all, we see the conquest of the Savior. He conquered sin, death, and hell. We can't yet claim victory over coronavirus. But I promise you, we can right now claim victory over sin, death, and hell. Praise God that he lives and he lives forever. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the proof that we shall live again. This is the Bible's proof that Jesus is the Almighty God. This is the proof that heaven can be our home if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that today you would speak to someone's heart. They would understand what's been said. The Holy Spirit would open their hearts to the realization of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To understand that we are sinners. That we must repent of our sins. That there is no way that we can reach God unless we come through Jesus Christ. It's to believe in Him and believe in that empty tomb and believe that He arose from the dead. This is the only way that we will be saved. Pray, Lord, that you would speak to hearts about this today. I pray for all those who fear death. Fearing death is going around our country like a wildfire. And I just pray, Lord, that... You would give confidence to people and hope to people and assurance to people that Jesus is alive. He arose from the dead. And if they will believe, so will they. There is no fear in death when we know that sin, death, and hell have been conquered. Thank you this day, Lord. Even though we can't see the faces of those that we preach to, we know, Lord, that your Holy Spirit works in the heart whenever the Word of God goes out. As we've said earlier... Your word never returns to you void. That's what your word says. We believe it. And we believe that you can use this message to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then we also pray, Lord, that your people would take this opportunity that we have. People are thinking about death. People are thinking about what happens when they die. And we have no better opportunity than we have right now. Probably not a better one in most of our lifetimes where our friends, our neighbors, people around us, everyone we come in contact almost is wearing a mask, is afraid they're going to catch a virus, afraid they're going to die. They don't know what's going to happen to them. What a tremendous opportunity that we have. Help us to use it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless our people. Uh, We pray, Lord, not only for those in the world, which we should, but we are very, very concerned about members of Berean Baptist Church, friends of our church, And we do so sorely want to see our friends again. We want to be meet again. We want to be the church assembled again. Lord, we pray that you would make that true in your time, helping us to learn the lessons 
that you would have us to know. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. And we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our thanks for the few who helped us to make this production possible. We're anxious to see all of our church family again. So please continue to pray that all remain healthy and our entire church family will be with the church assembled as soon as possible. And I want to remind you of, of ways that you can give your tithes and offerings in this time that we are apart. Uh, we prefer to receive them by mail at our church address, but another option is online giving. And then if you want to physically bring your offering, it can be brought to the church on Saturdays between the hours of 1.30 p.m. and 2 o'clock p.m. We'll have a parking lot drop-off that is available for you. Now, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel to receive all of the content that we produce. Next week, if the Lord permits, I will preach to you about faith. The title of the message is The Habitation of Faith. And we sincerely pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you and shine His face upon you. Thank you for listening to us today, and we pray God will bless all of you. We hope to see you very, very soon. If you have any needs or concerns, please contact us and let us know. We're happy to help in, in any way possible that we can. Praise God for the Berean Baptist Church and for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we close this broadcast. Father, we thank you again for this day that you've given us for Easter Sunday morning. Uh, Lord, we are thankful that we do understand that every Sunday that we meet, that we proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, that he's risen from the dead. And when we can't meet, we still have a story to tell. And we have, as I said earlier, a tremendous opportunity before us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in these trying times. Keep our people together. Bring us back together very, very soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.